Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another episode of Monday Morning Coffee, a segment of Inside the Firm. Today, I'm your host, Alex Gore. Lance Psycho is off to, you know what? I bet you he's fishing. It's a inside joke that our listeners will know. I'm here with Scott Rodwin of well, is I Rodwin Architecture, right? It's just Rodwin Architecture, correct? And Sky Castle Construction, where he's the principal at the architecture firm. And I don't even would you just call yourself the owner yeah. of the construction firm? Um, in 2006, he's a known commodity here in Colorado, and I say that, but a lot of my friends that aren't architects. Like they don't even know who the big people are. You're like, if you say SOM, that means nothing to them. Mm-hmm. They're like, you said three letters at me. So it's like, oh, I guess normal people really don't care. <laughs> but, but, but we care. Um, in 2006, he was named the Young Architect of the Year for the Western Mountain Regions. Uh, one of Colorado's uh, top construction firms in 2009 and a top 20 under 40. Scott does amazing work. I've known about him for a while. And we've chatted here or there at events, and I thought I'd have him in to have a chat. So how's it going, Scott? Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Nice to be here. Um, before we go back into where I was going to go, you said something interested mm-hmm. about growing a firm yeah. and the difference between you've, what you've seen different firms do and, and how this general rule that you kind of made up applies. Could you go over that? Sure. We're a 20-year-old firm, and we're about 20 people now. We're a design-build firm. Uh, we do both architecture and construction. Uh, we build about 95% of what we design. And we have about 14, 15 people on the architecture side and the balance on the construction side, with a lot of folks floating in between. A lot of the architects are project managers. Over the years, I've thought about how I want to grow. A lot of my mentors ask me, you know, what kind of firm do you want to be? How big do you want to be? And if you're just doing remodels and, and a couple of houses, a lot of firms, a lot of architecture firms are just one you know, one principal, and then often they'll bring on a, a junior partner or a draftsman. And that works really well for those smaller type of projects. But if you want to do anything larger, multi, uh, multi-family, schools, healthcare, anything like that, you do need a little bit more horsepower. The trajectory of our firm and what I've envisioned for it has always been very organic growth, meaning that if a project is asking us to grow, say we get a school or a larger project, that we might then staff up for it. But the intention is never to let people go afterwards because, as you know, training people takes a long time. And the most valuable thing in our office is our talent, our staff. And once we get a good staff person that we've invested a lot of time and energy and money training, we want to keep them. Uh, Whenever I hire people, I always say, I would like to hire you for the next 30 years. And they look at me with this very strange face because in our industry, as you know, many architects hop from firm to firm every two years figuring that they're never going to get all the experience they need to become a well-rounded architect unless they move around. They're going to get pigeonholed in any firm they're in because it's more profitable for the firm to have that person specialize in bathrooms or commercial work or just houses or just site supervision. I believe in creating well-rounded architects. Everybody who comes through my firm, my commitment to them is that I'm going to give them the opportunity to become a really well-rounded professional. Um, that's slower, 
it takes more time. It is not as profitable on our end. But what we found is that our staff stick around for a very long time because they understand that they're getting everything they need in terms of their professional development and support, um, support for their overall life goals at our firm. So we hire long-term, and I have a plan in mind, which is a very loose plan, which is that I like to grow, this goes back to your question, one person per year. Mm-hmm. I find that it's a very sustainable uh, growth pattern because if we, you know, if I just stayed at, at my original two or three people, that limits the kind of projects that I could take over the course of my career. And I want to be able to have diversity and interest in taking some of those larger and more significant, more impactful projects. But at the same time, I've seen some firms that say, we will be 50 people within three years. And they go and they take projects that enable them to staff up, but the projects actually can cause a lot of destruction to the firm because either they grow uh, too fast and they have too many new staff coming on that they haven't trained properly to execute the project, Um, or there's just chaos and pandemonium. Um, And as you scale up, there are things like HR systems and computer systems that also have to scale. So it's not just the staff, but it's all the infrastructure and support that comes along with it. Um, Or they wind up taking a project that is much bigger than their normal project, and they're just not used to that. So some firms have trouble dealing with a change in scale. So this process that we have for this general direction of roughly one person per year in growth means that we have enough time to train the new person coming on, that there isn't a lot of churn in our staff, that we're very, that we grow slowly but steadily. Yeah. Um, But that's just a guideline because it's really driven by what kind of projects come into the office. Yeah. And and one thing that you said earlier um, was you can, if you grow too fast, you can have this implode, explode. Yeah. Uh, explode implode kind of scenario um did you and another thing to add on that not only is it worth it when you invest so much time that your employees stay with you but soon you realize after you have an employee for so long and they're doing a project and you're overseeing it a lot of your employees know more than you. So it's not just... I am the least valuable person in my entire firm, without a (laughs) doubt. Uh, I I really don't know how to do anything anymore. I I sit there and I I play air traffic controller in the the center of the office. So I bring the projects in, I assign the people to the project, I hire the right people, I make sure they have the right resources, and I give them general direction, like you're going to take off on runway one (laughs) while this other guy is landing over here. And that's my, my job is to keep everybody moving because if you hire the right people and you bring in the right work and you set up the contracts right and then you give the project the correct direction at the beginning then imagine all these planes coming in simultaneously because i don't know how many jobs you have a bunch at any given time a we've, lot. we've got we've got 30 right now 30 right. active projects and 20 you know 20 staff so there are projects you know landing and taking off constantly and i find that it takes all of my time just playing air traffic controller and setting things in motion in the right direction. And then I have to trust that the pilots, you know, the project managers and lead designers for each project know how to fly the plane and yep. are flying it correctly and are taking care of passengers and making sure they don't run out of fuel halfway through. Uh, and, uh, you know, our job as firm principals is really to constantly check in with our clients and also check in with our staff to make sure that they're balanced. I have absolutely found that the most challenging aspect of running a design firm is balancing projects to staff at all times. Yeah. Uh, I, I would agree with that. 
Um, and I think it's a big responsibility that I, I know I take seriously and it, and it seems like you do too, because I've been at firms and you know, some of it was because of the crash, but you're spinning your wheels, you know? And then even I had one project where one of the principals told me like, ah, you know, I feel like you should have seen this coming. Remember when we were making up this work mm. as a, in my head, I go, I didn't know that was made up work. <laughs> I thought that was real work. Yeah, and the 2008 crash was a really interesting time for us. We were, I think, seven people at the time, and we were just a design firm. And I had a little construction company that I'd started five years earlier, but we only did like a project every two years. And when the Great Recession happened, I looked at my staff and um, I said, well, either... I'm going to have to let half of you go because we lost 90% of our work inside of six months. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or we're going to really turn on the design build aspect of what we do and we're going to blow it up so that we get more from each project that we have in the door. And my staff unanimously said, we like option number two. (laughs) That's way better. Um, And I was very fortunate to have had uh, one person in my office, a fellow named Brandon David, who graduated from the University of Colorado, uh, EMBD. And he was a good designer draftsman, but he was a junior, a very junior person. He'd only graduated a few years ago. But he also had 12 years of construction experience oh, prior to coming to my office. A good and, hire. And a really top, uh, top framing company that did what we do, you know, cut new custom homes. So um, I turned to him and said, you know, let's build this company from the ground up. Let's take everything that I've done before and throw it out. And let's say, what would be an ideal construction company, a design-build, architect-led construction company? And we redid all of our contracts and our forms and our processes, got the right kind of uh, subcontractors and vendors and the relationship with them. And he trained all of the, the site supervisors and the people that we worked with. And we've had this fantastic relationship for it's almost 15 years now where, God, oh, 14 years, um, where he has just been able to be the perfect complement. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm. And I come from the architecture side, but I have a little bit of construction experience. He comes from the construction side with a little bit of architecture experience. And we speak each other's languages. And that's something that's really important for a successful design build firm is to be able to speak multiple languages. Yeah. Um, I, I can't speak French or Spanish or Japanese the way that I want, but I, I can speak a little bit of contractor and he can speak a lot of architect. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we're able to... Uh, to speak to each other and then we both speak client and as you know that there are different ways of communicating with all three of those different groups every one of those skills is extremely useful because if you can't a lot of times communication is understanding how the other person processes information Mm -hmm. right so you have to communicate in the way that they process information subs contractors process information differently and even person to person than architectural staff or even uh, clients. Yeah. Did you find out of the myriad of things that you did, I'm sure you did a bunch of small things and maybe a couple big things, when you rethought how you were gonna essentially make the construction firm, mm-hmm. are there any decisions that now after, you know, that was 10, 14 years ago that you go, oh, I'm so glad there's these couple things that I remember making that decision that really worked out well for us? Honestly, the most important thing was finding the right person. Because as you also know, finding a person who actually has the balance between um, ambition and I would say stability or or groundedness is uh, very tricky 
because some people they they operate at a very high high frequency that mm. ambition of always trying to be better do more mm. and other people on the flip side are grounded they just want to do their job correctly and they like staying where they are and finding somebody in all parts of, of an architecture firm um, that is at the balance point of that. And for me, it's all about balance with all of my staff in all ways, but this is one of the most important things is finding somebody who has the right balance between the desire to, to grow or expand or to be ambitious and the, the desire to be where you are and execute and be grounded. Finding that point is critical and as I said Brandon has that in spades just as a character pursuit so uh, the best thing that I ever did was I hired the right person yep. and it was based on character that that is somebody with enormous integrity a high degree of um, respect for quality and good interpersonal skills because as you know in the construction industry there are a lot of people that yell at each other an awful lot yes. and get angry with each other because you're dealing yeah. with a lot of money, legal consequences, Time. people's lives. They have to move in to, to a house or to a business. And if there are construction defects, it could ruin your career in a heartbeat. So finding that, that, that balance point in terms of personality, somebody who is very rigorous but is also calm is critical. So I would say... Finding, waiting until you find that right person before you choose a partner, essentially a dance partner, yeah, uh, was the best decision that I ever made. It's a little bit like getting married, to be honest. I, I really like that. Yeah. Um, rigorous plus yeah. calm. The this the second second best thing we did is being very selective about the projects we take. We turned down and have for the last ten years ninety five percent of the projects that walk in the door. Take us through that process. Sure. Um, the client walks in the door, just a brief overview. And then if you do have to turn it down, what is, how do you do that? So, it, well, it happens literally every single day. I turn down roughly a project a day and have for years. Yeah. Somebody calls uh, or comes in through our, our website. Hi, I saw your website. I love your work. We'd like you to um, do an, a pop top to our house. And at this point, what I say to them is I always talk to them. I, I never have somebody else answer. I never shunt them off. So I talked with 100% of the people that have contacted us um, because they're talking about their life, their home, their business, whatever it is. And they're, you know, it's really important to them and they've done the courtesy of taking the time to contact me. So I'll yeah. do the same back. And I'll always talk to somebody for up to an hour. Um, it probably sucks up more of my time than, than it should and could, but we've wound up gotten, we've gotten a lot of referrals out of, people who we rejected and we said no to their project. And then a year later, their friend comes and says, hey, you talked to my other friend then and you couldn't take their project, but now I'm doing a bigger one. Yeah. So what we decided years ago is that we have a certain niche that we're good at in terms of size. Re small remodels, it's not our niche. We can't make any money doing it. Um, we're more expensive than a lot of the smaller firms. And we're not necessarily that great at it. There are other firms that specialize in that particular thing. I, I feel like this is something you might say. Yeah. Like that you mi literally might tell a client that. It, I do. Yeah. Like I, those exact. We're, it may. we're very transparent. So if they say, hey, we want to do a, a pop top. I'll, I, I say, tell me about your project. Where is it? I'll look it up while they're talking to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll say, oh, I see you're up on Sugarloaf. And that tells me a lot because it's not just one factor. It's not just the budget or just the size or just the sexiness of the project. 
Um, if something is close to our office, if it's convenient to where we live or work, that makes it easier for us to take the project. If it's a friend or somebody that we know personally, there's more incentive to take the project. If they have a healthy budget or they come across in a way that shows that they're very realistic as a client, that's a really good place to start. So I'll take a smaller project if it is more convenient or if there's a really good client or if it has some aspect that is particularly attractive to us. Um, you had mentioned earlier that a couple Googlers came to you uh, because mm -hmm. of this podcast, yeah. and we wound up doing a few uh, houses for, for Google folks. That we saw as being a benefit because, hey, we would love a long-term relationship with the Google community. So we, uh, we wound up taking some projects, including a, a modest remodel, a $600,000 remodel a couple of years ago for somebody who works with Google, even though we wouldn't normally do that because there is this, uh, we want to be part of that community. We want to have a relationship with, with that company long-term. So as, as you know, you pick your clients mm. based on a number of factors. If something is way up Sugarloaf Mountain, which is, you know, let's say 40 minutes drive you know, out of town, that's going to be a less attractive project for us because it requires us to dedicate a site supervisor full-time just to that project because they can't drive back into town very easily. Yeah. Um, and we know that it's going to be more difficult to coordinate. So we look at this wide variety, but our first screening is size. Uh, if a project is, our minimum project size right now is a million dollars. We know that if something is less than a million dollars, that we're not going to be able to give it our full um, our full resources. Yep. Unless it meets a certain, like, oh, it's literally next door. Yeah. So, we, yeah, we did the Japango Sushi Restaurant next door, and the original design for that was a quarter million dollars. It was a very small project. Yeah. Uh, when they came back 15 years later and said, we want to do phase two now and expand and double our size, that was another $700,000. So all of a sudden, it became a larger project. Yeah. But... It, but in general, we Japango's right next to our office, and we yeah. said we want to have we want to have free sushi. Yes, we actually did. That was part of our original contract. Is we got a year of free sushi, yeah. uh, in addition to our architecture fees. Uh, so yeah, there are a number of things that we look for, but our first filter is size of of the project because we know that there are certain projects that are too small for us, and certain ones that are too big. If somebody walked right. in the door with a thirty million dollar project, I'd say we don't have the ability to handle that right now. Uh, it's too big. It would take up our entire office staff. And that, you had asked uh, a while ago, you know, one of the things that you did right. Uh, and one of the lessons that I learned early working for larger firms is that sometimes when a large firm took on or staffed up for a particularly large project, if that project ever went on hold or went away, right. it could wipe out their firm in one shot. So that's why we try not to go too big uh, with projects because if we did take on a $30 million project, not that somebody's offering it to us today, but if we did and that project went on hold or went sideways for some reason, that would be the end of 20 years worth of work. And especially too, if, if you made the mistake of only concentrating on that because it was $30 million, it's going to be an extension to IBM. They're going to bring mm -hmm. the AI division, you know, and just blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden they pause. Yep. And you go, oh, we don't have a backup project. Yeah, I wasn't getting we, other work. What do we do with all of those people? I, yeah. And that's the other thing. I feel very strongly that I have responsibility to my staff. And my responsibility as the owner of the firm is to make sure that they have a job tomorrow. And because of that, I have to steward the path of the firm very carefully to make sure that we don't run into those situations where I put us in a vulnerable position. When 
when we've gone through various hard times over the years, I've thought about our philosophy. We're a fairly broadly disciplined firm. We do a lot of custom residential, but we also have restaurants and schools and offices. And for many firms, uh, most firms choose to specialize in a project or in a project type. Yep. Or if the, they're bigger, they have divisions. They have divisions, that's right. Um, but let's say a slightly smaller firm like us is that most firms tend to specialize because you get good at that particular mm-hmm. thing. Buildings have gotten so complicated that you really, just like doctors have to be radiologists or pediatricians, they have to specialize. Same thing with architecture, I believe, in that in order to really be masterful at that particular typology of building, you need to have a certain degree of specialization. It also leads to greater profitability because you become better at it. You, know, you develop uh, the... Uh, the drafting, uh, the, the basic drawings that go along with that type of project and the drafting tools and systems for that. You become more efficient at delivering, whether it's schools or multifamily housing or things like that. But, so, so you become more profitable. The downside is that if that sector of the market ever drops out, yes, then you're very vulnerable. So I think of it like crossing a pond, an icy pond. So if you're spread way out with your arms you know, spread out kind of like a spider and you shimmy your way across the pond, you're going to move really slowly, which I equate to low profitability, but it's very safe because if one hand or one foot falls through the ice, the other one supports you. And we ran into that in 2008. But if you conversely choose to uh, maximize profitability and really specialize, then it's like you're running across the ice. But there's so much force in each footstep that if one falls through the ice, you know, you're underwater. Yep. And I feel like when you do design, build, and construction, it's almost like you're throwing a line into the future, mm-hmm. you know, because that construction project expand, ex- extends. So all of a sudden something falls down, you just pull yourself that's actually, that's actually a really great analogy. I've never thought of that, but it, it does that because the time period of projects, you know, a, a small residential remodel, the time period of a project for an architect is what's called six months. Yep. For a new house, one year. For a school, two years. For a campus, five years. That's the, the length, the duration of architecture contracts. So you know how far in the future you can predict your staffing, your profitability, uh, things like that. But what the construction side did that was really beneficial is exactly as you say it sequentially follows after the architecture and then it's also longer than the architecture typically usually about double so two to one whatever the architecture was and that gave us much greater stability into the future uh, because if the if some architecture project stopped the construction side would continue to provide revenue for us uh, for the architecture side. And conversely, if the construction stopped, the architecture side could keep moving things along. The tricky thing about that whole scenario is that it took years for us to be able to get both machines firing on all cylinders simultaneously. That's when real profitability happens, but it always felt like either one, one side of the company or the other side of the company was doing great while the other side was languishing. Yeah, that, that is a tricky balance. Um, you said about 95% of your projects you do design build from the moment that you start talking about the contract. Mm. It, because in, in my head, I always viewed you as design plus build. Mm-hmm. We are. So we, when somebody walks in the door, we, we only ask them to sign an architecture contract. And the reason is, is that working with an architect is a little like dating and working with mm. a builder is a lot like getting married. It's a much more intense, legally involved, long-term and financially entangled 
affair. Um, so for them to look at our portfolio, read some of our reviews, that's generally enough for them to get a sense of whether or not they want to work with us as architects. If it yeah. doesn't go well, they're done in a year. With a builder, it's so much more involved that I think that it's very difficult and kind of irresponsible for people to choose a builder quickly. I think that you should have a long period of time to get to know a builder, see if they do what they say they're going to do. If, uh, for you to actually experience working with them, before you sign a contract. So what we do is we just start as architects and halfway through the design uh, process, we say, would you like us to be your builder? And if they say yes, we still don't require them to, to use us as the builder. All they're doing is giving us the first shot at the bid. Yep. At that point though, the relationship starts to form. We, we have our construction side actually shadowing the architecture side literally from day one on the project. But once they say, yes, we would, we, we've enjoyed working with you on the architecture side, it's the same people on the construction side, uh, at that point, our construction side really focuses on the project and gets very deeply involved in it. And the nice thing is it creates a relationship which is beneficial to both sides in that process because Instead of a builder walking in and just seeing a set of plans and not really understanding much about the client or the site or the project overall, right. they have had months to warm up to the project and really understand what the intention and the tone and the, and the pacing is and what the priorities are. Um, and then conversely, the architecture side doesn't end when the construction starts. So the project manager on the architecture side is able to continue forward and shepherd the, the project all the way actually till after construction. And that continuity that, uh, w you know, think of it a little like a relay race, except that instead of just handing off a baton, there's a long period of time where we're running together. Uh, we found that that old-fashioned master-builder relationship is something that is really effective. Um, in the 20 years we've been in business, we've never been sued. And that's unusual in our industry. Um, and I think that it has a lot to do with the fact that clients know that they have a team that is working for them. Uh, and that if things go wrong, that, that we are looking at ourselves as the only party responsible. That single point responsibility is really important, both to the client and to us, because we're not looking around to see who's, you know, who we can point a finger at. We're just going out and fixing it. Yep. And that attitude has has saved us from being sued. It has uh, made our clients more satisfied. And at the end of the day, makes me feel much better. I'm able to sleep at night. I'm the sole owner. Yeah. And it makes me feel uh, just really confident knowing that that's who we are. We're delivering the entire project to a client instead of just delivering some limited services. Yep. I, I got to imagine with 20 people and at least 30 projects, um, going on all at once. You can't be in every meeting with every person and all, and all that. No. Have you ever, has this ever happened? And maybe this is a fear that I have, or maybe other people have that isn't true where someone says to you, um, and maybe the way you set it up negates this, Hey Scott, I thought you were going to be the architect, but then I'm talking to John or Jill all the time. So have you, has that so, happened? So one of the most <laughs> important tips that I could ever give anybody is make sure that you set expectations correctly and check in on those expectations regularly. Managing expectations is one of the most important things that we do. And that might sound obvious, but let me give you an example. In the very first interview, 
whether or not they ask me, I always tell them, just so you know, this is how it's going to run. I will be involved in your project from start to finish. But the most important pro person on your project will be the project manager, senior designer. They'll be reporting to me. They talk to me every day. We check in constantly. The initial designs generally come from me, but they're also architects, and they will have input as well. Um, and then as the project moves forward and you develop a relationship with your project manager and then the job captain and the various folks on your team, I will decrease my involvement. So they know that I'm going to be very involved at the beginning, setting the course of the project. This goes back to that air, con air controller yep. uh, analogy that I was using before. Uh, in that at the very beginning, I'm strongly setting the intention and direction of the project and then turning it over uh, in a gradual fashion to the project manager. So generally by the middle of, of DD, design development, I have largely phased out of the the in-person meetings and the ongoing uh, daily management of the project. Yeah. And the project manager is taking it forward from there. We still check in on a daily basis. Hey, how's it going? Okay, do you have any questions? They send me red lines. And we have no walls in our office. My office is completely open. So yeah. everybody steps forward and just comes up to my desk and yeah. says, hey, Scott, you got two seconds. And they put something on my desk and then they ask me the question about that project and then they go away. So instead of having a lot of formal meetings, we have a very fluid process in the office, which probably doesn't work for everybody, but it's my style that I'm able to change from one project to the next very quickly. I, I need to figure out how to switch my workflow because we mm -hmm. I, the same thing, but the opposite. They call me, so I'm walking. Mm -hmm. The office is not that big. You know, it's well, you big get more exercise. I get more <laughs> exercise. <laughs> I, and I do that too. I move around the office. I'm constantly checking in yeah. with, with people as well. Um, but I need a screen that they can cast to somehow mm -hmm. so they can come over to my desk and cast to that one screen somehow. Mm -hmm. that, uh, would, that would be wonderful. And I'm, I'm waiting for the, you know, the um, Iron Man kind of, you know, just you take yeah, it yeah. and you flick it at the screen and, and the image goes up in a yeah. holographic format in front of your screen and you can both see it. I'm, I'm dying for that technology. I think it's actually here. I went to the Consumer Electronics Show a couple a couple times a few years ago yeah. as a vendor, actually. And Did I you go last like year? I was I there didn't like, go last year. Okay, I was there. I, I went uh, 2015 and 16. Gotcha. I'm pretty sure I got COVID from it last year. but <laughs> Probably. There are 150,000 people. There. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, a pretty exciting place to be. Yes, I, I, um, so we anyway, have. But, but I'm I'm old school. I actually have people generally bring paper up to my desk, old fashioned. Yeah, uh, I I used to be a CAD monkey when I was uh, working for big firms in Denver, and now I when we switched over to Revit 12 years ago, I couldn't make the transition, yeah. even though I implemented it for the office. I was the only one who was too dumb to learn it. Yeah. So um, I'm old school. I when I was in college, I drafted by hand, and I've now reverted to that. Yeah. Uh, people, when they when my staff comes to my desk, they bring me uh, printouts. Uh, and, and we use Bluebeam and stuff, and people send me stuff electronically as well. So it's not all paper, but yeah. if they want my personal interaction in face-to-face, -face, they, they bring a piece of paper to the, to the desk and say, hey, Scott, where should this go, or how should this look? And I draw on it. And it, that's, that's architecture to me. It, it feels much more, uh, well, first of all, much more efficient. I can, I can communicate something instantly with yep. the drawing that it can take a long time to communicate verbally. Yeah. Uh, but the way that, that I like to work that really works for me is to be um, accessible to everybody. The, 
there's an, in the martial arts world, in Aikido, there's something, a uh, practice called Jiwaza Randori, which means you stand in the middle and everybody just freeform attacks you and you take the energy coming in and you throw it off in another direction. And yeah. you keep on doing that until you get beat up. Yeah. Uh, so I, I practiced that for many, many years and that's the way that I love to do architecture in the firm is to stand there in the middle and have people come in. And it's not, a, uh, Aikido is not attacking with the intention to harm, it's more like dancing. Yep. So that's what it's like in the architecture firm to a large degree that people are bringing their, their problems, their questions, their design thoughts to me. We interact for a little bit and then they go back to their desk. Yeah. When the, the key word going back to the beginning of just this little segment, when you were talking to the client in our supposed scenario was, you know, uh, this is me, this is my role, but the most important person, mm -hmm. it gives a key to them like, oh, okay, you know, I know that, you know, Scott's a man, but my main person is going to be this person. And I think it just relieves the confusion and the stress. And they know that mm -hmm. this is where to go because, I, um, on the opposite side, when I've been an architect for larger projects, 30, 40, you know, projects, uh, unit sizes. And normally I'd be talking to the owner and the owner because the owner brought me in. Mm -hmm. I had a great relationship. And then sometimes you realize like, Oh no, no, I need to, I'm just going to talk to the guy on his staff actually doing the work mm -hmm. because that's the most efficient and that's the way to go too. Okay. So I, in my head, I, I think clients get that too. It's like, no, I'm going to talk to the guy actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. And then if, you know, and, and that is, that is true. I do try to be there for our client meetings pretty regularly because the clients do want to see the principal in the firm. They want to know the principal is still engaged. Um, and even though I might be engaged on a daily basis behind the scenes, they still need to actually have FaceTime with me to be able to tell me what's going on. And I need to have FaceTime with them because, as you know, we read things uh, subtly that you don't get secondhand. So when I'm in a meeting right. and a client is sounding a little stressed about a portion of the project, we had somebody uh, last week who um, they said for the fifth time in the span of a month that their current house um, is dark and they hate that. And they just kept on saying that, like this thematic element over and over again. The house we designed for them has giant windows. It's already light and bright. And we were talking about, some, uh, about the fenestration, about the windows and the sizing and the placement. And there was this moment where my project manager was making a very logical, reasonable call because, hey, there was structure there and she wanted the portions of the room right. And I said, you know what? We're gonna make the windows bigger. Mm. And the project manager looked at me because I, I uh, stepped in right. with, with that statement. And I don't usually do that. I usually make those comments more in the background, um, offline, away from the client. But in this particular they needed case, to hear that. the project manager was very focused yeah. on, on solving the problem in the most intelligent way but wasn't hearing the tone because they were their attention was on the plans while I was watching the face of the client and listening to the client's voice. And what I heard was that we're not giving them the assurance that their house is going to be flooded with sunlight. Mm -hmm. So even though it's going to cost them a little extra and it wasn't as logical a structure and the proportions of the room wouldn't be quite as good, what was most important to that client was being heard that they needed a house that was filled with sunlight. And that was part of what, if I wasn't in the room, it those windows probably wouldn't have gotten bigger. And the client, when I said that in the meeting, the client just stopped talking. They were like, thank you. Yep. That's all they said. They simply said, thank you. They had been waiting for us to do that for, for a month. Yep. 
and they kept on giving us hints and we didn't we, we hadn't taken the hint because we didn't realize how important it was to them so being in those meetings face to face or zoom to zoom is is so critical yeah and i don't think sometimes architects get a bad rap for pushing their own agenda mm -hmm. rather than their client's agenda and i've used the opposite example where let's say we're pushing for big windows mm -hmm. but they want a reduction in budget but mm -hmm. you and you're like you know in your head you're saying that's not the right move you want this but what if they're saving for their kids college fund mm -hmm. and they put more priority than your fancy windows they put it in they want their kids to go to see you and be debt free you know what i mean so it's that listening and paying attention is key regardless if you go bigger windows or smaller windows you just brought up something really important there is a major distinction between architects who do custom single family homes and all other architects. Not better or worse, just different way that we actually work. Um, lots of architects try to build single family or to be designers of single family homes and some just run from it screaming after their first experience because mm -hmm. working with somebody to build an office or a multifamily project or a campus or a hospital tends to be very businesslike for the most part. I, I know there's, yep, yep, there's yep. always craziness, but for the most part, these are professionals doing a professional job. They've got budgets, they've got schedules, they've got programmatic requirements, and quite likely they've actually been through this process in some for form before. So they're somewhat used to what the expectations are of how, how to behave with an architect, how to work with an architect and get the best from us. Most homeowners, most single-family custom homeowners, have never been through it before. Or if they did, it was a very specific experience that might not be relevant to what they're doing now. And when we work with single-family homeowners, it's extremely personal, intensely personal. This is their bedroom, their, their living room, their kitchen. And the decisions take on a, an emotional and psychological importance that is far greater than when they're working with a commercial client. And those two ways of working, those two languages of speaking, as we were starting, mm -hmm. uh, as we started talking about at the very beginning, are really distinctly different. So to be able to hear that somebody is in a house that she feels is dark, is there's an emotional component to it. And when we said we will give you, you know, light, you know, gobs of daylight, that that there was a palpable relief in her. She sat up straight, her face brightened, her eyes, you know, brightened. When you work with somebody in a commercial way, it's much more logical, matter of fact, um, in terms of did we meet the budget, did we provide the programmatic space, how are we doing on schedule. It is less emotional. But you brought up a really good point that even with commercial clients, understanding what's going on in their lives and what their motivation behind the project and the way they're interacting with you is is key for having a successful relationship because if you know, if they are having a family crisis or a financial crisis or something like that, or worried about their job, that will have a dramatic impact on how they behave on the project and even yes. the direction and advice that they give you. So it, it allows you to understand what they're telling you in a proper context if you develop some personal connection. Um, and we try really hard to actually develop a personal connection to, to our clients. Uh, we sometimes go out to dinner with them. We spend time asking about their, their children, their family, their pets, uh, their current living situation because we want to get to know who they are and what their, uh, their goals in life are specifically for the architecture that we're creating with them. We never say, how big a living room do you want? We say, how do you want to live in your living room? Mm -hmm. What do you want to do with it? 
Who are you going to have over? Where do you like to eat, to watch TV, to sit and have a cup of coffee? Because all of those are clues that help us to understand what they're really hoping to achieve. They're not hoping to achieve 140 square feet yeah. of space. <laughs> they're hoping to achieve a certain lifestyle. And the way that we get to understand that is to know what's going on in the background of their lives. Yeah, yeah. I, that was a brilliant way of putting it. <laughs> 140 square feet can be dramatically different, you know, depending on how you design it. Uh, rewinding again back to an earlier point in the conversation, uh, you talked about you know, going, well, from 1 to 20. And there's basically different levels, and you have to scale up your back end, back a house, your, your HR and all that, with your, we we'll just call it front of house. Mm -hmm. Besides that construction leap in 2008, can you point out one or two, and it doesn't have to be a pinpoint, but a, a, a change? Like I can remember when it was four people mm -hmm. and uh, 12 people is different than four. Yeah. <laughs> there are two points. The first happened at the very beginning. I worked out of my house. I had a spare bedroom and I, I worked out of house. We didn't have air conditioning and it was... Okay. Uh, it got up to 105 degrees in that room. It was like a Bikram yoga studio. We mm -hmm. were literally wearing a pair of shorts and nothing else because we were just sweating so much yeah. with, with the computers in the room, and it was just hot and all the, all the bodies in there. So we had three or four people, and at some point at four people, I was like, we have to get an office. This is ridiculous. So we went and we got an office down in the Pearl Street Mall, and that was a wonderful transition. And it was the moment that we went from being that small, little, scrappy startup, and it was essentially a group of friends. The three people I hired at the beginning were all friends. Yep. And we had the best time because we were just friends hanging out in a room, sweating a lot and drawing architecture. Um, and we were doing fun projects and, and it went great. But is this 2001, 2002, this is 3? 1999. 1999. Yep. And it was great, but we didn't have a copier. We didn't have, you know, we, I think we had one little printer. It, it, wasn't, very, it wasn't a very professional setup at yeah. the time. And then we moved on to the Pearl Street Mall. We got a copier. And frankly, I remember the moment we got our first Xerox copier. And I was like, wow, I feel like a grown-up for the first time now. Yeah. And, uh, and then we, we slowly evolved over the years and grew about a person a year. Uh, and then had that retraction in 2008. But we didn't shrink much at all. I didn't lay off anybody in 2008. I just, as you said uh, at the very beginning of our conversation, I think before we went live, you made up work. And I made up a lot of work for my staff that wasn't actually real projects. Um, although, interestingly, we did a sidebar. We created stock plans. We were asked yep. by the, uh, one of the big stock plan building companies, Hanley Wood, to make some stock plans. And we said yes, and it went well. Um, but those stock plans came from during the recession. I had nothing to do and nothing for my staff to do. So I just drew floor plans. My staff drew them up into actual building plans. And then I sent them off to Hanley Wood. And Hanley Wood said, these are great. We want 30 more. Yeah. So we've been doing stock plans. Whenever we got slow, uh, we would fill it with stock plans. And it's like a retirement account. Yeah. It, it, it's an investment up front. And then slowly, over a long period of time, it has residuals. Uh, it just keeps on every month I get a check for sales that are just happening invisibly out, out in the, the internet. Yep. And it, it's just... I'm making up a number, $500 per plan you get or something like that. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not a lot, but they sell a lot of plans. Right. And it's and it's been fun over time as, as um, our plans have gotten more popular, they just sell more. So it's just a check comes in. During 2008, I was like, oh my God, I'm spending literally $100,000 on staff time 
to do something that we got no compensation for. But now every month we got a you know check for thousand bucks, two thousand bucks, and that's a nice um, reward on the back end for not firing people, not laying people off. Yeah. Um, but you asked what are the sort of the inflection uh, yeah. points in the growth of the firm. So the first one was that time when we shifted out of my house and then actually got a real office. Uh, but the second one is happening right now. Uh, and sorry, the second one was actually 2008. Yep. But the third one is happening right now that when COVID started in March and April, the phone stopped ringing entirely. No calls. Matter of fact, I checked the plugs because it was just <laughs> bizarre. I had never crickets. And that's uh, seasonally, that's when most of our projects come in because uh, after the holidays, people regroup for a little bit and then they start thinking about the new house that they wanted. And it's just this springtime thing that happens every year. And we had no calls. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, we're about to go through another recession. And I've been through three of them so far and, and they're, they're devastating to yeah. architecture firms. And I was like, oh no, here we go again. So I told all my staff to ratchet down to 35 hours a week and I started battening down the hatches, cutting all spending, you know, stopping marketing. And then May 1st, the phone started ringing. And then it started ringing off the hook and it has never stopped. Uh, we have quadrupled our project load in the past 11 months. It's, I've hired seven new people. We're growing like gangbusters. Yep. And... Um, to the point where I'm a little scared because we're growing so fast and taking on so many new projects, but they're all exciting projects that are right in our wheelhouse. And it just happened that this time, the, the combination of low interest rates and people needing a house to do more than just be a house has made it that everybody's looking for bigger houses that have more functionality to them where they can take care of their kids and their parents and their work yep. and their school and their yoga and their everything else in their house. And it has created this enormous demand for high-end custom homes. We're doing some commercial work as well. We're doing a fitness center down in, uh, in Monument and a uh, mixed-use project in Erie. Um, and those are really fun and give us a lot of balance in the office and some diversity of project types. But our bread and butter is custom homes, and right now that market is just exploding. So that's where if somebody calls us and says, hey, we want to do a remodel to our house, we just can't take it right now. Yep, yep. Um, let's go pre-inflection point, mm -hmm. before zero. Yeah. You were working at where, and then what decided, what made you think, I want to hang out in a small room sweating with my friends? <laughs> <laughs> with no An accident. Um, I won't say who it was with. But uh, what happened is <clears throat> I had been, I moved out to Colorado in 92. I, I graduated from Cornell in 91, moved out here in 92. It, there was a recession in the architecture world at the time, um, and I just moved out to a place that I wanted to live and found a job here immediately, which was remarkable. Um, and it was not a great job. I got paid $4 an hour doing really grunt-level work. Wait. What, what year is this? This is 92. 92. So... I, I mean, couple. For, I was working for a firm that still exists here in Boulder. I yeah, in nineteen ninety eight or something like that. Anyways, I was working at McDonald's and it was five dollars an hour. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, now four bucks an hour and no overtime and no benefits. I was an independent contractor. Ah, much too. Yeah, so it was probably the exact minimum wage. I'm sure if I was making five and you know, whatever ninety seven. Yeah. Anyway, so did that and then worked for half a dozen other firms over the course of the next 
seven years. Yeah. Uh, and some firms were good. Uh, worked for Davis Partnership in Denver, and that was a really good experience. Uh, I've got a lot of uh, great uh, great experience in that. And then worked for some other firms where it was not a good experience, where uh, they would work you to death or where there was, uh, architects can be kind of abusive. You know, they just, you know, they can yell at you. Yeah. Um, and I learned a lot about how not to treat people working at many of those firms. Uh, so when I created my own firm, I, I actually decided if I were an employee, what would working at this firm look like? And that's how I set the, um, essentially the office culture how I pay people, so pay people time and a half for anything over 40 hours a week, very generous benefits, a lot of flexibility. And I always, when I hire people, I always start by saying, we all have lives, and I'm going to make sure that you feel comfortable taking your dog to the vet in the middle of the day because there, you know, there's something wrong with them, or right. picking up your kid at school, or going on that month-long vacation because you've never gotten to take a month-long vacation before. And when it's snowing out, go take a powder day. I'm going to insist that you go take a powder day if you're a skier. Because I want people to actually really, really enjoy life. And sometimes I have to work hard to train them to, no, this is okay. You're not going to be penalized. Matter of fact, I'm insisting that I need you to be happy and balanced and healthy and have good relationships at home and take care of your family in order for you to be able to show up at work with a real focus and commitment and, and gratitude for being there. And that's part of how we keep people at the firm for a very long time is, is making sure that they understand through my actions that we are, f we are for them having the best life that they possibly can. And that's a really, I think, unusual thing for a lot of firms to do, to focus on taking care of their employees as the priority but it has paid back dividends because I love going into work. I love hanging out with my staff. I, I love the fact that many of my staff have been there for an incredibly long amount of time. Um, and that helps the firm because when somebody is there a long time, they do a better job of executing the work. You don't have to keep on retraining people. So it's, it's a mutually beneficial um, arrangement, and it just makes me feel good to treat people the way that I would, I wish that I had been treated in many other firms um, that I worked at. Uh, but the answer to how I started the firm was I was working at one firm for just eight months, and the owner of the firm did something that I considered to be highly unethical, and I slammed the door and said, I cannot work for you anymore, and I walked out, and that was it. And then... And, and I had no plans to do that at all. I had no job. I had no projects lined up. I had no connections or no relationships. I didn't own a computer. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a drafting board. I didn't have a place to do the work. I didn't have anything. So then, how did you? Okay, you did that. Uh -huh. You went home. <laughs> I went home. How did you start getting work? Um, I live in co-housing, uh, yeah. and have for twenty-seven years. And I told um, my neighbors we were sitting out in the courtyard that night, and I said. God, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Yeah, you know, I I felt like I could probably pick up a new job, you know, if I wanted to, but I was like, I'm pretty clear. I'm done working from other other people. And one of my neighbors who was sitting at the table said, "Actually, I need an architect right now." And I was like, "Oh, what do you need?" And she said, "Well, I have this 200 acres right next to Rocky Mountain National Park, and I want to build a beautiful, super sustainable straw bale cabin." And I said. Like, all right, let's talk. And I took on the project. At first, she said, can I just hire you for a few hours, literally three hours yeah. of consulting? I said, sure. And we, after, after three hours, she said, okay, I need you as my architect. 
for the full thing. And I still charged a ridiculously small amount of money, painfully small. But I put everything that I had into that one project, and it wound up winning a Golden Nugget Award from the Pacific Coast Builders Conference, which is, a, I was competing against Centex and you know the giant yeah. builders. And at that show, it was me sitting at the table in San Francisco at the at the convention center, and all the other tables were these giant multi multi million dollar building conglomerates, and they were like, "Who's this kid that's walking up to the stage?" So it was it was just by community and by luck that I picked up a job pretty quickly, and also uh, a good friend of mine at the time, uh, who was Japanese, was involved with the Japanese community, and Japango Sushi Restaurant was looking to. Um, to take over an existing space. So they needed a restaurant. So within two weeks, I had a house and a sushi restaurant. It's like, how wonderful and accidental start to a career. And I just, both of them turned out to be terrific projects that went very well and led to other projects quite quickly. Yeah. Um, But the nice thing about working out of your house and just being a sole practitioner is you don't need to make a lot of money in order to actually do okay. Right. Uh, your, your overhead, my overhead was so low. So I would go out mountain biking or do my laundry or make dinner or do whatever I needed to do. And then I would pick up the phone and make a phone call and I would draft some. And then I would go back to you know, having a normal daily life. And as a way to start, as opposed to securing a big office and buying a lot of equipment, it just kept the pressure really low and allowed me again to organically expand as projects came in over time, I would you know, hire my friends to, hey, come in and help me with this. Yep. And it, it almost felt like a party in those first few years because it was just friends hanging out in my house. Yeah, absolutely awesome story. A beautiful story. Um, if anyone wants to get a hold of you for architecture or anything, where can they do that? And then if you, I'll let you take us out, whatever you want to leave the audience with, it's up to you. Sure. I, I think this is the first interview in 20 years that I haven't talked about sustainability, <laughs> which is funny because that's our reputation. It's what we're known for doing green building. Uh, but you can find that on our website, which is www.rodwinarch.com, R-O-D-W-I-N-A-R-C-H.com. And you can also find out about the construction side, Sky Castle Construction there as well. But uh, mostly you'll learn about the architecture and, and how we move forward. And you're always welcome to just give me a call. Awesome. Thank you, Scott. Thank you.